Today is February 3rd, 2017. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neuroscience Research Podcast. February 2nd, actually. Is it? Yeah. February 2nd, then. Um, thank you, Charlie. Sorry. For derailing sorry, me. It's so easy. Um, I've been asking you to say your name. Harel? Harel Shuval. Yeah. Is that's, guess? A, that's an American version. Harel. What's the real? Do you want to hear that? Yes. Harel Shuval. Harel Shuval. Okay. Sounds Much cooler. So Harel is uh, Associate Professor of Neurobiology and Anatomy at the UT Health Sciences Center at Houston. He studies synaptic plasticity at many levels, from its molecular basis to functional implications of it by applying theory and computation, but still remaining closely rooted in the biological framework of experimental studies. And you've heard his voice, so you know what he sounds like. Um, his work has covered a broad range of problems, um, memory formation and maintenance development of sensory receptive fields, and more recently how cortical networks represent time. What to me is the coolest and most remarkable thread in all his work is a commitment to defining implementation rules in high-level um, networks with biophysical realism uh, and, uh, and in the language of molecular effectors. So that's very cool, always to have someone like you uh, in the room. Covers all ends of the spectrum. Um, around the room, we've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. And we've got Todd Troyer. Good afternoon. And I'm your host, Selma Karashi. So, recently you've been working on the solution to, to such a fundamental problem, which is how do um, neuronal dynamics emulate the dynamics of the environment in learning associations between um, cues and temporally distant rewards. So that's, so it's, it's, a, it's a difficult problem, right? Because the, the signal sort of follows the sensory cue and it's yeah. all mi mixed up. So how would a network solve this problem? And what has theory versus experiment brought to bear in thinking about the dimensions of the problem? Yeah. How do you um, tackle I mean, that? I, I think it's a huge problem. You know, to, to, in my view, it's the most fundamental issue of the brain. I really see the brain as a prediction machine. I think it... Now, I, do I have much evidence for that? Not necessarily. But, you know, I think that the brain does learn something about the temporal, spatial temporal statistics of the mind. Temporal is important. And it tries to emulate it in order to predict the future. You know, so it's kind of people who talk about brain, it falls into the more motor-driven theories of brain, that we need a brain because we move. We need a brain because we can do something about the future, unlike plants who are kind of, at least not on a short time scale, able to move. So it does fall into those theories, those groups of theories, and... Uh, but I do think that that's, a, and it's, it's, that's the most fundamental thing the brain does. It's an emulator of the world that learns from the world to a certain extent. Some stuff is built in to a certain extent that learns about the statistics of the environment. And it is a huge question. And how can it do it? I don't really know. Uh, that's why we're starting with relatively simple problems like interval timing. Uh, I think it might do it differently in different circuits, and there might probably different time scales on which it's done, and that they too might be in different circuits. Um, but uh, 
you know, I, I, do I know how it's done? No. And the problem is, one of the problems is that neural elements have their very limit, they have their dy- limited dynamic ranges that determine how a single neuron would work. There are several time constants, but not you typically not a huge set of time constants. Uh, but somehow we need to learn not the time constants that are in, built in our machinery. We need to learn the time constants of the world, which might not be the same time constants. So you need some kind of emergent property of these networks to be able to span this different time constant. Um, so one of the things you study, though, is, a, is especially a weird twist. Like if I imagine my nervous system just decides to build machines that have time constants that emulate the ones that happen out in the world so that I can predict the future, that you could imagine doing that. We do that. And yeah. with computers and that sort of thing, yeah. it's relatively straightforward thing to do. But one of the things that we have to do is run time backwards and say, given that this happened, what, what would have been my best option right. a while ago? And we do that somehow, yeah. as if by magic. Right. And we, I don't think we, it is, I don't think we really know too much about how we, to build a machine. Yeah, so in a computer, it's yeah. easy to keep a perfect memory of all the times in the past. And then it's more easy to go back in time. Just search back. Just search back in time through all these options. And... We as machines are probably pretty bad at doing that, at least in an explicit way. So we need to find other strategies of doing it that are uh, different than the way a computer would do it, uh, of going back in time. Um, so it seems like one of the one of the issues of that it's different, and I don't know that it's different, is a computer makes a buffer and puts the past somewhere else, yeah. and you have the now, and then you have the past. Yeah. And you have what you do in the past. But it seems like the brain does it all in the same stuff. Yeah. Right? I mean, there are different circuits, memory circuits, and different circuits that have different time scales of things like hippocampal or different kinds of memory versus cortical things that may do some shifting around of different parts of the problem. Uh, and I don't know how much that matters of the segregation of the problem into different components versus just doing it all in one circuit, right? How does the past affect the now in the circuit that you have, uh, you know, from primary vision cortex? Or and most of the time people are finding that the cellular changes underlying memory are embedded in the circuit that's doing the job in the first place, right? right? Yeah. And so that means that the dynamics are all... And the memories are somehow inter. And the same, yeah. The, the yeah the the calcu- the memory circuit or the memory buffer, and the, the CPU are the same thing. Yeah. Um, even though it's not always ridiculous in computers as well. So, I remember years ago I was trying to run a big network, and someone told me, "Well, why don't you use these supercomputers at Oat Cridge?" And in the beginning, I just wrote code for these supercomputers and when I wrote it myself it run, ran much slower than the code that was on my Unix machine 
And then I talked to the people at Oak Ridge whose job it was. So the slowest thing in those machines is the message passing. So the way I wrote it caused an awful lot of message passing between these parallel nodes, which slowed it down. And one of the ways they solved the problem is that each one of their nodes had memory on it. So if you saved a few things in the memory locally, you actually could save a lot of time on this message passing. So sometimes it's important for some maybe parallel machines that are very different than this type of computers we generically know how to write for. So maybe it's not always... I mean, I know we carry that computer metaphor probably yeah. too far, but one of the advantages of that kind of device is that that local memory is randomly searchable. You can, you're looking yeah. for one piece of information. And I don't know if... Do you think that anything like that happens in the brain? It seems to me that when I hear people yeah. talking about reading out memory, yeah. it sounds like they're like replaying it, like a tape recorder or something, not randomly searching for some fact in memory. Yeah. So what do you mean randomly searching? So uh, searching by what? But, I mean, you're t when you're talking about computers, you need like an address for where to get That's it right. from. Uh, yeah, and when we're trying to retrieve memory intuitively, right, it doesn't seem that that's what we're doing, right? right? It seems that there's some kind of an association or some kind of dynamics that happens where at the end this will pop out. Um, so it's, a, it's, a, it's very different, I think, in that sense. Um, but, I, but, I think, but I think even, you know, in the brain, we probably have different types of processes. Some of these more automatic things we were talking about where, but, so in like reinforcement learning literature, which is mostly computer science machine learning literature, which makes it really hard to read and understand how it's related to the brain. But in that literature, they now have like model-free and model-based uh, learning, where model-free is kind of what we're talking about, where you just, so let's say, how do I navigate the world? So there was an early model that I really liked of, of TD learning, where with place cells, et cetera, but basically it says, okay, you go to one node, and in that node there's information whether you should go left or right, or in which direction to go, what's the most, and then you get to the next node, there's a next place field, and then you make a decision, and, and, that would be a model-free thing. So if you need to move from place to place, that's what the result would be, which is kind of the way my father navigated. You know, he never knew how to go from his house to town. He always had to go through his work to go to town because he... But most of us can read maps, and we have something more abstract in our brains, and, like, and we can find other paths through these maps. So if there's construction, yeah. and you have to detail, yeah. it's okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that is how you do that in a brain. I have no idea. Those kind of theories are very non-brain-like. Those model-based. They're cognitive science or computer science, but they're not. So in this in reward learning, um, there's the the way the way you've written about it is that there's a process of defining an envelope, right? Of what where the learning has to start and the learning has to stop. And what are the things that define that? And how... You mean so in the experiments. Yeah. And in the, and there's a clear stimulus and a reward. 
Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, but also, so as I was as I was thinking about this stuff, how much of this stuff is so? I think in the in the '90s, everybody was talking about attention, right? And yeah. attention defining that envelope. Yeah. And I didn't pay attention to that stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but but the way the way you do it is a little bit more um, incremental. You're actually looking. You're actually modeling a network. Yeah. You built. You built it. Can you tell us about this? Because it's it's really. I mean, uh, so, I mean, the, well defined. Some some theorists really ask really big questions and try to solve them in a very abstract way, uh, and I, I think it's a valid way to do it. It's just kind of hard for me, personally. You know, I. When I was a kid, I was really interested in philosophy until I realized we can never make, figure out what's true and what, you know, there's no way of making any decision. I kind of became very connected to things we can actually do. Uh, And I think that's often my approach to science. I want to start, and being a physicist by training, so you have an experimental observation, you start from there. It, I choose experiment. There are millions of experimental observations. I choose experimental observations that I think are related to my big questions, but I still try to build things. That's why I also prefer to build things that are related to physiology rather than behavior, because there's so many layers in between that you really don't know in physiology. So, so I try to, even though it's related to the big questions, I try to work from an experiment or a set of experiments. Working from an experiment rather than a set of experiments is much easier because it's much easier to find one's theory that accounts for one experiment versus several, but that's the wrong way to re- usually do it. But, uh, so, but you know, a several set of, of experiments is where I'm just comfortable, more comfortable of starting. Uh, and the, when you model physiology or molecular stuff, which I do as well, you have a very, you're very restricted. You know, when you're modeling behavior, I'm not really sure what you're modeling in some sense. You you always have to make jumps, you know. Uh, Here, I have a model cell that's firing, and there's a real cell that's firing. It's a very concrete comparison. There's synapses in the brain, and my model has synapses. It's a one-to-one kind of thing. Uh, I mean, obviously, I don't have all the details, but, you know, these are named objects. I would talk today, people didn't hear about, about a synaptic eligibility trace. That's an abstract thing. I can't go and measure it. I don't know. I haven't given it a name. I can't. So that's a, a problem. You know, in order to really make sense of it, you need to give it a name. You need to say what chemical it is or what process it is. And then you're in the business of you can go and measure it, see if it behaves like you do or not. Right now we're measuring something uh, indirect, you know, the consequence of this. The measurements are not of the thing itself. We can't always measure the thing itself. Like in physics, quarks are supposed to be, this, you know, the, the building blocks of all elementary particles are in themselves not measurable, and their consequences are measurable. And, but... I prefer if they could be measurable, you know. So, uh, well, I want to go back to 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 what you just said because I think that's one of the 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 coolest things about what you're doing now, and it actually contradicts what you just said. It's okay, nice. I, I, I also I was, contradict. Yeah, right? I was hearing that too. Right. So, like, 
Because you said you have the synaptic uh, uh, eligibility trace, yeah, and you don't know what it is. You don't like that that it's yeah. an abstract thing. And then from the model, you said you needed it would work better if you needed two of them, yeah, one for LTP and one yeah. for LTD. Uh, and then in terms of measuring, so you still weren't measuring them, yeah. But what seems really interesting is is the is the question of so you have these eligibility traces that are slow. So you have your associational event. Uh, a long trace, and then you have a reward stimulus that uh, interacts with that trace to change the yeah. actual weight. Okay, so what was really interesting is that you have different traces, and then in the experiments you had different modulators right. that you could manipulate, right. and then the readout was really the the um, change in the, the ch- change in efficacy. So what you're doing is actually like you do any of these other indirect things, you probe. Uh, the effect of that thing, yeah. of that proposed thing. Now, the thing that I think is really cool and really opens things up and may be able to, someone like you may be able to pull it back, right? So you have these traces and you have these different modulators that are happening at different times. Now, if the trace is some, presumably the trace is some signature of some bio, complicated biochemical reaction that's happening yeah. inside the cell, right? And now what you're doing is you're probing that at different times. You're probing that internal dynamics yeah. at different times with different modulators, and you're getting some effect even further downstream. And so like people, you know, for did a big difference from moving from heavy in plasticity to STGP, where they really took time and were measuring time, now you have a long-term trace that has maybe multiple traces so that you're actually maybe can get them back to the complex dynamics of the biochemical pathways. That but I'm missing. What, what did I, where did I contradict myself? You, you said that you didn't like studying things that are – so the trace. So, no, I, so I, bringing I, it back to really studying something real, but you don't have, yeah. you don't have those – Yeah, no. I mean, I, I, I'm not, I don't think it's a contradiction. No, I, I don't think, so. You know, I mean, I think – even though I admit that I contradict myself all the time. But uh, I don't think it's necessarily a contradiction. I think it's just you do what you can, but you, you know, I guess when, when, uh, when Newton, et cetera, talked about gravity, he would have liked to have strings there or something real to mediate this gravity, but he could still measure the effects of this very abstract gravity thing. It's some force that you can't see and you can but, but, so I'm, I guess, in the same place. I, I like to have something concrete that I can measure, can call it by name, but if I can't find it, I'm willing to live with seeing the consequence. That's what I meant about quarks. We can't see them themselves, but we can see their consequences. Uh, it would be nice, you know, any physicist who finds a way to actually isolate them and find them on their own, unlikely as it is, uh, would be happy. But, you know, sometimes we can't do that. But so do you think that, so do you think that, I, I don't know how many, I mean, you, you convert, uh, convinced uh, Alfredo Kirkwood yeah. to do some timing experiments. of Because he already things. did them. Because he already yeah. did them. So you didn't really convince him. You convinced him. You <laughs> pre-convinced him, right? But it seems it seems super powerful to probe, because this is the long term, you know, yeah. L, the L and the LTP, you have some induction event, and then you have some expression event that if it's L, it's long. Right, yeah. it's there's a lot of steps in between. Yeah. People have a lot of stories about various things that go on, but it seems that it, if 
neuromodulators really affect things in a, stra a strong way. You have lots of different probes that may think may make us think a lot different about things like reinforcement learning, these modulatory systems that instead of some state of the brain, right, that you actually have different things happening at different times that come back and can do different effects depending on the past association, right? So if you're integrating over what do you do with the last 10 seconds of your brain activity and how do you change it and remember which components depending on... Yeah your cholinergic, you know, adrenergic dopamine system going up and down, there's plenty of time for them to do, have interesting dynamics on a couple seconds. Yeah, so I think, you know, some of the evidence that I didn't show today is that there are at least different neuromodulatory systems that are active. So, for instance, in prefrontal, both uh, norepinephrine and dopamine can express LTP. Uh, and then we have the unknown as of yet, role of the cholinergic in those slice preparations. Those are neuro different neuromodulatory systems. Then they might attach to the same eligibility trace or different ones. So we might have here a whole zoo of different traces and different neuromodulatory systems, which can kind of parse time in some sense. Uh, so at that point, what's the difference? How can you say that it is model-free? Because basically the state of all of those systems is a representation of the world that gets queried by some other thing. And we never really discussed the Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I think that one of the problems is defending the language of model-free. Uh -huh. And really, you're not editing this, I know, but these reinforcement learning people have very strange language. It's always hard for me to figure out. Uh -huh. So why they call this thing model-free or model-based is something to do with cognitive science and, you know, those kind of cognitive is something, you know. So it's not really necessarily what we think. There is a model. So let me talk about what I think uh, yes. it means because I, yes. that's the only thing I yeah. know. And that is the idea that there's some kind of cognitive re representation yeah, I think that's true. that can be queried. Right. And so yeah. Yeah, I in think that's the what case where you're navigating, there's a representation of the world. Yeah. And then at different moments... And from different places, you would query it in different ways to find out mm -hmm. where am I or what direction should I go to get to the prize. Yeah. So that, as opposed to just I turn left at you know Pennsylvania yeah. Street and then I go over to yeah. New York and turn right. And so that uh, if you if you have that kind of model, you have flexible knowledge of the world. Right. Yeah. But I, I think it's if, if I were you, I would be more interested in my results if they were the beginning of a model like yeah. that that could be queried. So, I, yeah. so in a sense, reflex, yeah. right. I, so in a sense, and I'm not sure I ever thought about this before, but in a sense, I think you can think of what I'm talking about, the emulation of the world, as a physical embodiment of this model. So, for instance, in, in, in pre-play, in place fields, right? So, so uh, so that some of the idea is you can come to an intersection and, and play the future, given, you know. So that's an example of a model that has dynamics based on experience, but can see the future. And you can pre-play possibly more than one option. So yeah, that would be an, that these, learning these dynamics is a real embodiment of a model in some sense. Uh, but you're looking at 
primary sensory areas where you have... Why put it there? <laughs> but, you, but you've got yeah. all this sort of sensory filtering right. coming from the bottom up, and then you've got these representations and more cognitive level top-down stuff, and it's all happening on the same neuron. Maybe this is why people confuse their wishful thinking and reality. <laughs> uh, but, um, yeah, it's not, you know, look... It's not that if before these experiments, anybody would have, the experiments were not designed to find this, right? So if before these experiments, if anybody would have asked me, where should I look for this? Probably the last place I would tell them to look for this is a primary sensory area. We've all kind of, at least in my generation, been indoctrinated and, you know, the brain has hierarchical and there are different levels of cognitive uh, description and, and Sensory areas just kind of look at the world and maybe do some segmentation in something very low level, but they don't care about reward or time. That would be where I came from. So it was really surprising. And, and it's a mis- this, this experiment, to a certain extent, is a mistake. The original experiment, I don't know if Marshall remembers this. Mind us what the original experiment was. So exp- the original experiment was, right, so people here didn't hear this. So the original experiment was from Schuller and Baer in 2006. And in this experiment, rat has two LED goggles. It has a re- chronic recording in the visual cortex of single cells. It comes to a lick tube where it gets water reward. It gets a flash either in the left eye or the right eye. And depending on which eye flashed, it will get a reward a certain time later. Uh, let's say after one second in right eye and two seconds in left eye. I'm oversimplifying this. And then the neural responses start getting elongated back towards the reward time. So they don't respond only to the visual stimulus. They respond to the visual. They get turned on by a visual stimulus, but they stay on until the expected reward time. Now, this is not the reason the experiment was done. To start with, the experiment was done in order to see if these neuromodulators could be used to speed ocular dominance plasticity. That is, that could we make cells in the brain prefer to connect to the left eye uh, if we also paired this with a neuromodulator. Because actually it was early on recognized that you don't get this ocular dominance transition if you don't have neuromodulators, if you don't have norepinephrine and uh, acetylcholine. You need one of them enough, but if you oblique both of them, you couldn't get this. So the idea was to see if you get ocular dominance plasticity. But the thing is, once the experiment was done, the strange result happened that these cells started firing for much longer because the original reward stimulus was kind of continuous throughout the thing. So that kind of raised or much longer than the time of the visual stimulus. We suddenly, so that kind of said, okay, let's go back. So it's re- we really got dragged into this from our interest in plasticity and how neuromodulators can affect plasticity this question of dynamics. So, and it happened to be in, in V1 because that's where people usually look at ocular dominance. So it was a mistake. But it's a little bit like the neurons are holding an image of mm-hmm. the, of the uh, condition stimulus until the re- reward comes. Right. That's what it looks like. It looks like they're just, they've taken a snapshot and they're just holding it in their mind's yeah. eye, in visual cortex's yeah. eye, you yeah. tell it's no longer necessary because the reward has been timed and yeah. predicted. Yeah, but it's not until it's no longer necessary because it goes down even if the reward doesn't come. Ah. So 
it's held there until the animal thinks, animal thinks, I mean, you know, but, but until the machine predicts that. In the 90s, everyone would have called that attention. Right. right. And, yeah. and, you know, frankly, we got all these reviews. So why isn't this just attention? Right. Now, when I told attention people about this, they said, what do you mean just attention? <laughs> uh, attention is a very vague concept uh, um, and it's a top-down kind of thing and it's even more confusing with attention because the secret molecule of attention is often acetylcholine so since we're involving acetylcholine here it's even more attention-like if it was prefrontal cortex this would be called working memory and I think it's even the models are almost the same models of new working memory, except we're working the sub-threshold regime. So when you work in the sub-threshold regime, you have the advantage of actually being able to time. So it's a very close thing, and you could use the same setup to do a working memory task that will stay on forever, or a de uh, slowly decaying task. So it's a very similar thing to working memory. And so I would say it's a transient working memory. And and every working memory is eventually transient. But, you know, it's a transient working memory. And the time of the transients is important. But again, the people here don't know what I'm talking about. But that, so the claim for the other people listening is that every circuit in the brain, including primary sensory areas, can learn about the dynamics of the world. And the simple example is timing. So just... To recap, bring people onto the same page yeah. that we're in. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, um, so where were we? Before? So I have two. I, yeah. I have two questions. So what is there any noticeable difference in V one, but from reward trials to catch trials um, in the behaving task? Not in the original recordings. Now, Marshall now claims that he does with many, many more. Marshall Schuler, um, one of the experimentalists working on this task. Uh, claims that he has, and I'm not really even sure I'm saying this right, but there are some neurons that maybe show some response to the reward signal itself. I think what you were I don't think that was, to yeah. was how long they fire. Well, yeah. And there's a reward, and then they quit firing. But if there's no reward, they quit firing anyway. Yeah. yeah. So I don't, so yeah. I, I don't, in, in the original data, We've split it into cast trials, and, and there's no significant difference. Obviously, there is a difference, but it's probably mostly fluctuations. Or maybe we don't have enough power mm -hmm. to see a significant difference. But uh, so, you, so I don't know what you're thinking, but I was thinking that on a cast trial, you keep your activity going just a little bit longer because you would be thinking, oh, maybe it's coming. Yeah. And whereas the re uh, if the reward actually signals Can't. back. If the reward does feed back to yeah. the neuron until it... Yeah, it could shut it down it. once it's there. Yeah. Right. We haven't seen evidence for that, but it would be hard to do because you should realize that there's a huge fluctuation, of trial by trial fluctuation, of when we can say the activity went back down to baseline. Because it goes down gradually. or because Not because really... it goes down gradually, just because the brain's noisy. So sometimes it's... So hard. maybe if we could record from many... so. If at most we can record from 10 neurons at once, they can record. I don't do the recording. They record. But then only five of them change their activity, and two of them are peaked. And one, you know, so you don't really have typically more than two or three neurons 
you can really say when this activity. So it's very variable because neurons are variable. So given, but not only that, we know behavior on timing is variable. So there's a Weber-like law with a pretty large coefficient of about, what? I'm sorry, the noise. It's making noise? Yeah, that, those frequencies are really, um, sorry. There's a Weber-like law. Weber-like law means that the longer the time interval, the less good we are mm-hmm. at estimating this time interval. And there's a variability that's a percent of the time. And I think in timing, it's relatively big. I think it's like around 20%. So given that large variability, even in behavior, uh, which maybe arises from these neurons, uh, it would be hard to maybe see that difference. Uh, you know, even though if you had enough data, you should be able to see it. So, uh, you know, I don't really know the answer to that. Um, it would be nice if they could record maybe optically, you know, calcium imaging of these cells and get hundreds of them at once rather than this... Uh, a few on every trial. So my other question was, which is actually related to maybe a solution to this one, but if it is something related to attention, so one of the, the problems that I find in this whole, all this timing stuff, because it's this, the clean experiment, you have the animal have an event and you wait for another event and nothing, presumably nothing happens in between. Uh, because you're controlling for nothing happening in between. You're just doing the timing. But I don't know how common it is to have those that kind of timing behavioral task. Is that important for the for your brain to do most of the time or not? Uh, but so suppose you set up this this task that way. If it's some kind of attention or whatever, one question would be, what's the difference in the visual processing? When, when you have a bunch of these neurons that are elevated. So you put your cue on, and then, I don't know, is your acuity different? Are they sensitive to things, or would they be distracted? Would they shut it off? You have a second of time between the cue and the reward after they're trained. So what's the response or the behavioral response like to other stimuli in between? Does it modulate the response. Does it not pay attention to other stimuli? Yeah, I don't know. Is yeah, there more attention have, yeah. to flashes, the more attention to salient events to reset, or, you know, what happens? Because, uh, you know, if it's just a functional thing yeah. about paying attention I mean, to I, I agree with you completely that it's a very contrived experiment compared to the world. Um, but as you probably would agree as well, it's very hard to study more naturalistic type of things. Right. They change by time from time to time. Um, I'm not sure there's a way around this. Well, that's why I'm saying mine is more naturalistic. Put one controlled yeah. stimulus in between to see yeah. what the perturbation is. Marshall is, is going so that, from... That's the yeah. kind of thing you were talking about doing by giving optogenetic stimuli and that sort of stuff, manipulating the network in between. Yeah, but that's so, about more to test causality. Uh, uh, I think what Todd is saying is... Uh, I think he was saying two things... But, but, Correct me if I'm wrong. I think you were saying... Three, actually. Five. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. That's why Todd's so confusing. He yeah. says many things at once. You know, there are three things, you know... Uh, that didn't Holding up five fingers, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so what were you saying? I think one thing you were saying is it's a very non... Maybe non-natural, and why should we be doing that? How often in the world do we have to wait a second point thirty seven? Uh, for a certain event and really need to time it well. Um, 
so maybe it's a non-naturalistic kind of thing. So uh, if, if you shoot skeet, it's completely normal and natural to you. You say, pull, the thing's going to fly in a certain amount of time after that. And while you're waiting, you do not let anything interrupt you. You don't listen to the kids. Are you counting? Probably. I mean, when yeah. I've done it, I haven't counted. But maybe good skeet shooters are counting. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, there's a question of how do we do it. So often we want to suppress people from... Because what we're trying to think is of these natural events that we do in the world where we don't suddenly stop down and say, you know, and start counting to t time to time. So there's coming in, and maybe animals don't know numbers, so maybe they can't do it by counting. Um, so the purpose of counting, though, time is just to get on a time scale that it's easier for you to be accurate on. Yeah. So I can... I can count one second more accurately than I can count ten seconds, so I count one second ten times. The timing problem is basically the same, right? It's just yeah. that I'm better at certain intervals, which is probably has to do with the construction of my brain. Yeah. My brain has better representation of one-second things than it does ten-second things. Yeah. But, but, yeah, I, so I think we do have that, you know, clearly in motor world, on the motor time scale, we have that all the time. Uh, and it's, we don't think about it. It's an intuitive, but we have that all the time. On the more sensory things, it's harder for me to find examples. Do you, but do you, do you think that visual cortex and auditory cortex would have the same uh, dynamic range of time sampling ability, given that they're kind of happening on different time scales? They are, right? Auditory is much faster, yeah? Typically, you think of auditory as happening on a much faster time scale, yeah. Uh, so does that mean they have different built-in machinery that already works on different time scales? It's the fast things in auditory actually brainstem typically. The oh, auditory brainstem, true. not necessarily so much the Experience auditory is cortex. Right um, if you're listening to me, yeah, but it's harder to drive. It's harder to drive auditory cortex in a sustained way than it is with visual cortex. You have to have much recurrent. You have to have a dynamic stimuli yeah. more so than you do in in visual cortex. Uh, and you get more transient responses and other kinds of things. So it may be different in, in an yeah. interesting comparative kind of way. Yeah. Uh, you can do, just do the same experiment and see whether you get sustained. But it might activity. be also because of the nature of the stimuli. So it might be because you have different channels or whatever. But it also could be that this is experience dependent. And the nature of the stimuli is different, so the, it picked up different time constants, etc. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, obviously, I'd like to think of all the brain is made of the same thing exactly, repeated over and over. So why do you ever study uh, primary visual cortex, this weird part of, uh, of, of <laughs> cortex? <laughs> that's the canonical, that's the seat of consciousness. Uh, um, you know, this is my physicist talking, you know, yeah. wanting to have uh, something relatively uniform that has... You know, and, and I do, one of the things that kind of, the first one of the first examples that I saw going into neuroscience from physics was that paper from the Sur lab where they redirected visual inputs into auditory cortex. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. That really is one of the things that kind of was really exciting for me early on where I kind of thought, okay, plasticity is probably the thing to learn because... You can learn to do the same thing. You know, you can learn to see in auditory cortex. Not, you know, 
probably not as well, but so I mean that wasn't one. Of, so that's kind of you know part of my psychological background is that you know that's why this is my focus is on those kind of things, uh, on how we learn things, and maybe a lot of the machinery is similar. It's just the different statistics of the inputs that change the beat, the its function or its dynamics. Thank you so much for visiting with us. And I'm going to link uh, the two relevant papers, I think, on the website, just in case we lost our listeners somewhere in the middle there. <laughs> but thank you uh, for listening. This has been Neuroscientist Talk. Mm-hmm.